to the 40 and Infertile Podcast, where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Today is all about endometriosis. We speak with Dr. Matthew Lenardi about general information on endometriosis and its impact on fertility specifically. So I've been looking to discuss this topic for quite some time, particularly after I was diagnosed. Like so many of us, um, it was initially dismissed by my gynecologist and with some encouragement and a hysteroscopy that didn't go as planned, I was finally able to be evaluated for endometriosis. Um, And it took some effort. So You know, an ultrasound was kind of normal, an MRI was normal, and then um, after further discussion, and then when this hysteroscopy didn't go as planned, um, I was able to finally get the official diagnosis of endometriosis. So today's episode um, isn't about um, treatment for the pain as the primary symptom. So I want to make that very clear. What we're talking about today is really are the basis of um, pathology or, you know, the disease process of endometriosis, what it is. And then we kind of tie that into infertility. So I want to make that distinction because how we treat those two different um, scenarios is different. Um, I want to make sure that we kind of make that distinction so people who are looking to this who have pain as a primary symptom and not um, infertility, this would probably not be your episode. Um, but those of us who are struggling with infertility, this is just um, a foundation for us. The next episode that I have on, which will be really awesome as well, another Canadian physician, um, Dr. Rahi Victory, we talk about um, what happens during transfers. Um, if you're interested in, in what you would need to consider for um, stimulation protocols or for your egg retrieval, um, then look at our episode with Dr. Rahi Victory about stimulation protocols. We touch on it a little bit in the next episode, but um, this is really the foundation and then kind of how it ties into infertility. So we spend a ton of time discussing um, endometriosis, its signs and symptoms, and then the diagnostic tools that we use Um, This disease process is so complex and so mysterious. Um, There's still so much we don't know about it. And Dr. Leonardi does a really great job of exploring what we know and what we don't know in a very honest and transparent way. I don't know if this is a Canadian thing or not, but um, he and Dr. Uh, Victory have this very transparent and direct way of communicating things. And so I kind of dig it. But um, it. Dr. Leonardi is super passionate um, and advocates for advancement of care for endometriosis patients, which is super important. And so uh, um, in kind of hearing some of his thoughts, I really felt like as a patient, some of my concerns were heard, at least from the infertility side of things. Again, that's all I can kind of base this off of is my experience with endometriosis and infertility. So if this is you, this is a really great episode for you to listen to. So will the next one. So keep your eyes peeled for that or your ears, I guess. Um, So thank you so much, Dr. Leonardi, for being here today and spending your time with us. I'm so grateful for your expertise. And um, here we go. (music) 
just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, we're back here in 2023 now, and I'm so grateful to have Dr. Matthew Leonardi here um, to talk to us all about endometriosis. It's such a difficult um, condition to kind of get diagnosed and then kind of find treatment options for. So I'm so, so grateful for you, Dr. Leonardi, for being here to talk to us about this condition. Thank you, Victoria. It's wonderful to be here to talk about a disease that affects so many people and has such an impact on people's lives. I'm really excited to share what I know about the disease. Yes, thank you so much. Um, let's kind of first talk about how you came to focus on endometriosis and how this became a passion for you. For those of you that are familiar with the Harry Potter franchise, <laughs> there is a line that Ollivander, the wand maker, says in the first book, the wand chooses the wizard. <laughs> and I feel that line really strongly when I talk about how I came to work with people with endometriosis. Endometriosis is such an enigmatic disease. It's something that we don't know a lot about. It is something that many OBGYNs, general practitioners, find to be a very difficult disease to look after. And so not that many people actively seek it out. But what happens is it seeks you out. It really enamors you with the uh, fascinating details of how the disease comes to be, how it develops, the complexities of the treatment, the mysteries around diagnosing it. Really, that box of how this disease exists in society right now just completely won me over. And once I learned more about it, I couldn't really not focus my area academically and clinically on endometriosis. I think it's fascinating, and I think so much of what uh, we can do is still to be learned. So it's a very exciting area to focus on from a career standpoint. I think you're so right. It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Like, I, I think when people talk about endometriosis, I mean, still now, what I, I mean, the average, they say, takes about 10 years to actually get diagnosed. And I think there are a bunch of different problems that come into that, right? Like, it's a woman-focused disease, and there's a lot of pain, can be pain involved. And, um, you know, a lot of times it's like, well, it's, you know, painful periods are normal. People have painful periods. It's supposed to be uncomfortable, and it frequently gets dismissed. And so I think having the discussion on things to look out for um, is a really important part of bringing more awareness to this condition that hopefully people can get more relief from. Because sometimes you don't find out until you're much, much older where, you know, it it has affected you in other ways for such a long time that it changes you. You know, some people get these, you know, really significant depression from the pain. It keeps them from working, having a social life, things like that. And it can be so, so difficult. Um, 
So for those who don't know much about endometriosis and maybe just got, got diagnosed or maybe um, are wanting to find out more information, maybe we can start with what is endometriosis because there's a little bit of confusion as to what it really is. So can we just start with the basics? What is endometriosis? For sure. And I'll, I'll tell you what we know, what I know, and this comes along with a bit of a caveat that there's so much we don't know and there's so much that we're constantly learning about the disease. So nothing that is said really in this podcast will stand the test of time. That's Mm -hmm. science. Science always changes. Mm -hmm. So what we know about endometriosis now is that it is a disease whereby tissue grows in a place that it's not supposed to grow. This tissue is a tissue that resembles the lining of the uterus, the endometrium. And the tissue grows outside of the uterus. It can grow on the peritoneum, which is the lining of the entire abdomen. It lines all of the organs and the sides of the abdomen. It can grow on any of the structures in the abdomen. So that means it can grow on the outside of the uterus, on the ovaries, on the fallopian tubes, on the bladder, on the bowel system. It can even in some people grow on the diaphragm, which is the big muscle group underneath the lungs, essentially. Endometriosis has been found now in every organ system that exists, including eyes, brain, spleen, the extremities, the arms and legs. It's a disease that can grow anywhere. So it's a tissue that grows abnormally in an area that it's not supposed to grow. And this disease for a number of factors leads to, in many people, inflammation and a pain response. That pain is, of course, interpreted by the brain. The brain is responsible for interpreting all of the signals in our body. And that's relevant when we talk a little bit about treatments because how the brain interprets the events of the body is relevant to the treatment. So in many people, it is a disease that leads to inflammation, growth of tissue leads to inflammation and pain. However, in some people, that presence of tissue can also lead to major scarring in the body where organs can stick together And the function of those organs can be impacted. So for example, the fallopian tubes can be impacted by endometriosis either on the fallopian tubes or nearby the fallopian tubes. And the ends of the fallopian tubes can become blocked. The fallopian tubes are meant to be a a channel that allows an egg in the pelvis to be uh, brought into the fallopian tube and travel to the uterus to meet sperm. And if the end of the fallopian tube gets blocked, the function of the fallopian tube becomes impacted. Similarly, if the ovaries become surrounded by adhesions from endometriosis, the processes of ovulation can also be dysfunctional, meaning it's not working exactly as it should. That impact on function can also be experienced by the bladder, by the bowel system, And even in some extreme cases, the function of the uh, lungs can be impacted. The function of the kidneys can be impacted. So it causes major impacts on organ systems in the body. I think there are a couple of important things to point out that you said. I think one is that it is 
um, tissue that is similar to uh, what is found in the uterus. Because I think one misconception is that it is uterine tissue that is found outside of the uterus, but it's um, it's uterine-like, right? Because I, th- I think that the reading that I've seen is that um, it's not... Uh, it's it's not the exact same tissue as we find in the uterus. Is, is that a correct distinction? Yes, it is a correct distinction. For all intents and purposes, it might not make the biggest difference at this point in time. Mm-hmm. It might make more of a difference when we understand how it is different and what types of therapies might be able to target these endometrial-like cells. Mm-hmm. There are lots of individuals in the endometriosis community, both professional and lay, who have very strong feelings about the exact nomenclature, the exact uh-huh. wording we use. Uh-huh. And so, yes, you are totally corrected. They are endometrial-like cells that are growing outside of the uterus. Uh, but I think people are overall putting a little bit too much focus on this particular nomenclature. Mm -hmm. There is a a very kind of uh, famous, maybe, saying Mm -hmm. endometriosis is not the endometrium. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, that's true, but it's becoming almost like a a catchphrase or a a slogan for Mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. I don't really fully grasp the Mm -hmm. importance of focusing on this nitty gritty detail Mm -hmm. rather than the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. But um, you're right. And there's controversy. Okay. Um, and I think as there is, as there is in everything. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. And I think, um, the second important thing is, um, the, I don't know if misunderstanding is the right word, but, um, some people still view it as like a pelvic only disease that it's only in the pelvis, but as you stated, it can be found in many other parts of the body. And I don't, I don't know that maybe even the medical community is fully understanding that you can find this disease outside of the pelvis. Would you agree? 100%. In my talks, in my publications now, as we've all learned more with time, I will always describe endometriosis as a systemic full body disease a systemic mm-hmm. chronic inflammatory disease. Systemic meaning that it can affect the whole body. And that can either be, again, directly on an organ system like the diaphragm or the lungs or the bowel, but it can also be not visual, how endometriosis changes the vasculature, the blood supply in the body. It creates new blood vessels around where it deposits how it changes the nervous system. It creates new nerves. Neurogenesis happens. It changes the muscles that it exists around. It changes the brain. Endometriosis truly is a systemic disease that has both direct and indirect impacts beyond where it is existing. You know, I think I still hear sometimes people talk about it being, you know, primarily in the pelvis, but I think people who are not um, specialists in the area, um, I don't think, you know, think beyond that, like, you know, that it's still this kind of abdominal pelvis kind of region. So I think that's super important to bring up. Um, and so the let's truth kind is, of, yeah, if, mm-hmm. if, if I can, sorry, Victoria, the truth is in, in medicine, there are common things and mm-hmm. the general group of physicians, whether that's GPs or emerge physicians, or even OBGYNs, mm-hmm. they're servicing 
a general population of people. And so we have to understand common aspects of a disease. Endometriosis is primarily a pelvic disease. Even though I'm a specialist in endometriosis and I do see the people who it affects other organ systems, Mm -hmm. the majority of my patients have pelvic endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And in those patients, even though the disease is not directly impacting, for example, the diaphragm or the lungs Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. the you know, it's not brain endometriosis, it is affecting the other system still indirectly. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is a problem with the lack of recognition of endometriosis as a systemic disease, Mm -hmm. but it still is in the vast majority of cases, a gynecologic disease that affects the pelvis. Mm -hmm. And Again, the dialogue around, you know, this is a, a, a disease affecting the diaphragm or the lungs is not rare. In the grand scheme of things, it is rare, but it's still important to address. In your own anecdotal um, experience, um, how, what percentage of your patients do you find that there are disease outside of the pelvis? Maybe that'll kind of give some people some reference. Yeah, know? fair. I think it's uh, going to be less than... of the patients that the disease is directly impacting outside of the pelvis. And almost exclusively, my patients are considered endometriosis or chronic pelvic pain patients. So if you are a general OBGYN, for example, and you see, first of all, pregnant patients, and you see patients who have bleeding problems, and you see patients who have, let's say, postmenopausal discharge, you know, your, your population is more broad, that prevalence of the rare, rarer forms of endometriosis is going to be so much smaller. It's probably going to be one in a thousand. So that's not who the general OBGYNs or family doctors or eMERGE docs are really thinking is walking into their office. Should they think about these things? Of course they should. But you could apply that same concept to every rare aspect of every other disease process that exists. So we have to also be practical in what we expect of people. And for rare things in medicine, the reality is, unfortunately, it takes longer for that particular disease process to be recognized because it's rare. Yeah, I think that's a very fair statement to make too. I think, um, you know, even, and I think probably a lot of this comes from um, people in the infertility community have spent so much time trying to figure out, you know, what's been going on and what has been contributing to their issues. Um, And not only that, uh, um, at least in the U.S., it's not mandated coverage on our health plan. So a lot of what we're doing is paying for cash, you know, and even, you know, in my current health plan, um, if, if I had said, oh, I'm wanting to explore endometriosis because of infertility, it would not be a covered benefit under my health plan. It's something we would have to pay cash for. So I think um, a lot of the frustration and um, trying to find the answers. um, And then just once we get there, we're like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't know. And, you know, if only we had known. So I think just knowing the information is helpful. But I think what you're saying too is very important and saying that, you know, common things being common, uh, we, the expectation is that, the majority of the time it will start there. However, if there are some of these, you know, other um, concerning symptoms, then maybe that's when we need to push a little bit harder and find a specialist who can say, yeah, I agree. This does sound kind of funny. It sounds like it's a rare version 
of yeah. this condition that we should explore further. But, you know, having said that, someone has to be able to hear it, right? <laughs> like we mm-hmm. have to find a person to hear us yeah. to say that. So um, now l- let's talk a little bit about symptoms. Um, wh- and let's start with super common and then let's kind of go to less common. So what are the common symptoms that um, people can expect with um, endometriosis? I'm going to I'm going to kind of come back to the point you made about the fertility world of um people experiencing infertility and wanting an answer. And so though not truly a symptom, but rather a sign of endometriosis is infertility. And it's actually one of the most common causes of infertility. So by no means in the world of the infertile person should endometriosis not be on the radar of the health team around that patient. It actually, in my opinion, should be one of the top reasons for infertility. Unless, of course, there's some, you know, other dramatically obvious reason that somebody is experiencing infertility. It should be one of the top reasons. And so when I'm talking about the rare stuff, that's going to be more people who are experiencing the pain experience and the rare symptoms like chest symptoms. But when it's infertility focus, that should be top of the list of items. So infertility is one of the most common things that is experienced secondary to endometriosis. That's considered a sign rather than a symptom because it's not something that walking around the world, you know, right? You don't sit there thinking I have infertility just by knowing it, right? Versus a symptom, which would be considered pain, uh, When we're talking about the symptoms of endometriosis, period pain is the most common symptom that exists. But other types of pain exist as well, quite commonly. One of the other most common types of pain is pain with intercourse. That's called dyspareunia in the medical sphere. And we should really be asking people about their experiences with sexual activity to understand whether that's a symptom or not. The other symptoms that are pain-specific symptoms for endometriosis include pain when having a bowel movement or pain with particular bladder experiences, either emptying the bladder or a very full bladder can be a very painful experience for people. The other not necessarily pain-related symptoms are gastrointestinal constipation, diarrhea, and bloating is an incredibly common symptom. There is even, uh, very interestingly, uh, a hashtag on Instagram, endobelly, where people will all of a sudden experience a sudden, unexpected bloating, severe bloating, to the point that it's dramatically obvious that an Instagram photo can depict it. Bloating is really common. And then some other less known But common issues around endometriosis can be a bit more vague, like fatigue, for example. And of course, fatigue and bloating can be from things that are not endometriosis as well. So it's important not to always blame endometriosis for everything. But fatigue is something that we're learning more and more about in its relationship to endometriosis, probably through the impact on the inflammation pathways but also probably through the impact on mental health as well. Have a heavy menstrual flow, 
um, that sort of thing. How, how heavy is heavy? Like what, what is normal? It's a good question. The word normal is kind of a terrible word because everybody is different. There's not really, you know, normal appearance. There's not normal, um, uh, behaviors like everybody is different, right? So what I try and do with my patients is understand when something is negatively impacting them. Somebody could have what they would perceive to be heavy bleeding, but they're not missing work. They're not having an impact. It's not having an impact on their sex life. That's when things start to become abnormal when it's having an impact on your life. So what's normal, what's not normal is really difficult to answer. But if somebody is having heavy bleeding that is bothersome to them, it is worthy of telling somebody, telling a healthcare provider about that. And even though we still exist in a quite paternalistic and dismissive society of gynecologic problems like heavy bleeding or pelvic pain, where people are told that is normal, you're fine, I encourage people to persist. If they are told that what they are experiencing is normal, but it's bothering them. They should tell the physician or nurse practitioner, whoever it is, fine, maybe you think this is normal, but it's impacting me. So help me figure out how I can optimize what's going on. Heavy menstrual bleeding is not always something that endometriosis patients experience, but the disease of adenomyosis, which probably deserves its own whole one hour talk uh, is more known as a cause of heavy menstrual bleeding. And there is a great, uh, large association between endometriosis and adenomyosis. So again, I encourage people to really try and understand the granular diagnostic elements of what's going on in their body. A lot of people will come into my office and say that this is from endometriosis and this is from endometriosis and this is from endometriosis. But the reality is, is the first thing you told me is from endometriosis. The second is from adenomyosis. The third is potentially from the muscles of the pelvic floor. The fourth is maybe from the ovaries and the hormone balance, the hormone function that's going on. So tr trying to better understand and break down the complex pelvis problems is really helpful to then target the treatments. And that makes a lot of sense too, because I think they found my adenomyosis first and then figured out that I had endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And it was a little bit of a, because it was ultrasound first. They're like, oh, your uterus looks kind of funny, you know? And then I was like, well, you know, we kind of went through symptoms and that sort of thing. And then eventually it, it finally did come to endometriosis. But, you know, I was mm -hmm. told that they are you know, cousins, I call them cousins. So yeah. <laughs> like they're, you know, they're like kind of related, but not exactly the same thing, but it can I get call a little them the, fuzzy. The evil, the evil stepsisters. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So now finding, okay. So because as you mentioned, it is, you can't like, you don't necessarily walk around knowing that you have it. Cause let's say like, if you have high blood pressure, you can measure your blood pressure and you can see if it's changing, if it's improving, it's worsening. If you have, you know, high cholesterol, you can't see it, but you can, there's ways to measure it. There's ways to kind of like find it, look for it, and then kind of treat it. And endometriosis is a little bit different. Um, there are a few ways that you can look for it though. Uh, it's not 
perfect. Can you kind of talk about ways that um, once you kind of get to the space that you're in, you find the right person and they say, yes, let's look. What are some ways to diagnose and find this condition? Great question. You can break down the current diagnostic strategies into a few categories, which is helpful Mm -hmm. for organizing your thoughts. So the first category would be non-invasive methods, meaning no general anesthetic, no cutting, no surgery is needed. The second option, of course, is the invasive options, which would be the surgeries or the biopsies that involve some sort of cutting uh, going on. So non-invasive options right now are primarily ultrasound and MRI, which stands for magnetic resonance imaging. Both of them are imaging tests. Both of them are technically non-invasive as they don't really require any uh, cuts or anesthesia. That said, we shouldn't undermine that people with endometriosis can have pain. And with inserting an ultrasound probe, it can be uncomfortable. MRI is sometimes an uncomfortable process as well because you have to be in a small box for an hour and you often need an intravenous line with some medications. So even though they're non-invasive, they still can be uncomfortable experiences for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we can talk more about ultrasound and MRI for sure. Um, yeah. The invasive options are really at this point, surgery, uh, mm-hmm. most often done laparoscopically, which means keyhole surgery, putting in a scope that can visualize the contents of the pelvis or the mm-hmm. abdomen. And anybody who's doing a diagnostic laparoscopy for endometriosis should not just look at the pelvis, but should look at the bowel system, uh, part of which exists in the pelvis, uh, but also should look at the diaphragm in particular, the liver, the stomach, the upper abdomen uh, is important to evaluate during that uh, surgical uh, procedure. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the two main diagnostic categories at this point. With surgery, you do have biopsies, which are when tissue is removed from the body and looked at under a microscope by a pathology doctor. That is maybe considered a a separate diagnostic category altogether, but it is always associated with surgery. Uh, That's the point, doing surgery to see and then take something out of the body to look at under a microscope. Many people ask me if we diagnose endometriosis non-invasively, if we have to confirm it with a biopsy, And there's a big answer to that depends a little bit on the context and what we see exactly on the scan. Uh, But for the most part, if we're talking specifically about diagnosis, the answer is no. If we are confident in what we're seeing on an ultrasound or on an MRI, and it aligns with people's experiences clinically, their symptoms and their signs, then they don't need to have it removed to confirm the presence They may have it removed to treat the disease, but not Mm -hmm. for diagnostic purposes. I try and really distinguish between diagnosis and treatment. Mm -hmm. But historically, endometriosis was diagnosed always at laparoscopy with Mm -hmm. surgery. And Mm -hmm. so for a long time, and still today in many places around the world, those diagnostic procedures and therapeutic procedures are at the same time. They're Mm -hmm. hand in hand, they're intricately tied. So a lot of people have a hard time saying we can diagnose endometriosis non-invasively. There are people Mm -hmm. who are very actively fighting against that for one reason or another. 
but Mm -hmm. the way that the world is moving, the way that research is moving, the way that delivery of care is moving, we are moving to a non-invasive diagnostic approach. In Europe, the European Society of Reproduction and Human Embryology, ESHRE, has proposed in their latest guidelines published last year that laparoscopy should no longer be considered the gold standard test for diagnosing endometriosis, which Mm -hmm. uh, I believe in as well. I think if we can diagnose Mm -hmm. it non-invasively, that makes much more sense for people. Um, Because any procedure is not without risk. So uh, anesthesia or, you know, surgical risk or whatever. So I, I can understand that. And, and I can also understand how some people may have a hard time with that because I think, you know, as you said, it's been this mystery and some people just want to know, you know, like you just want that piece of paper that says, yes, this is it. Like I know for sure, because the question I think that comes up sometimes is like, well, how do you know for sure? Like, how do you know this is really it? If I don't have something, you know, and I I can understand both sides having experienced a little bit of both because, you know, I did undergo and and I do want to talk about MRI and ultrasound, but I I did both. I did an ultrasound and I did an MRI and my ultrasound was like mostly normal um, and my MRI was totally normal. And then it was um, after I had a wonky hysteroscopy that they said, well, let's do laparoscopic. Um, And he, he was kind of like, what you said, my surgeon said, you know, um, I'm not going to go in and just do a diagnostic laparoscopy. If I'm in there and you're already under, I'm going to excise or, you know, whichever Mm -hmm. method he's going to use to treat it. He's like, I'm already going to be in there. You're already going to be under Let's just get it all. And so that's what ended up happening. But, you know, obviously that's my experience, but let's kind of talk about the ultrasound and MRI. And, you know, how often do you find um, endometriosis? What are you looking for? How does the ultrasound help you? And, you know, is it, you know, really under the, um, the guidance of a really good ultrasonographer, you know, um, that can kind of see all of this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you go to your gynecologist and maybe they aren't a specialist and they do one, like, would you recommend finding a specialist to kind of take a closer look? Can we talk a little bit about that? So this is, like everything, controversial. Um, In the world of endometriosis, uh, particularly in the uh, patient population advocacy groups, what I have seen is an amazing movement for people to advocate that their gynecologist is essentially endometriosis aware. They understand the disease better. They can do excision surgery. They might be able to deliver a multidisciplinary care approach involving dietitians and pelvic floor physiotherapists, for example. There has been an incredible movement to ask your GP, family doctor, nurse practitioner, send me to somebody that understands endometriosis because the general OBGYN is not going to be the expert in endometriosis. Just like I don't claim to be the expert in any obstetrical care. I don't claim to be the expert in vulvar dermatology. I have my area. That is what we've seen happening in the patient groups. But what we haven't seen is people asking their family doctor, GP, whoever, for expert imaging. We have existed, particularly in North America, with what I would consider to be substandard gynecologic imaging, both through ultrasound and MRI. That is because 
historically, we couldn't see very much with these tools because the technology wasn't so good. So we're really, really behind the times in what we evaluate for on a standard ultrasound or a standard MRI. A standard ultrasound in North America essentially involves looking at the uterus and looking at the ovaries. As we started this conversation, endometriosis is a disease that affects the environment outside of the uterus. So the only potential for a standard ultrasound is to pick up an endometriosis cyst and endometrioma. That's what they're called. Anything else is going to not be identified because they're not looking. You don't look, you don't see it. So sonographers, technologists, radiologists across North America are not looking for endometriosis. So of course they're not going to find it. What we have to do is we have to distinguish between a standard of care ultrasound and a specialist ultrasound, just like we're distinguishing between the general OBGYN and the specialist endometriosis expert. And we have to start asking our primary care providers to send us to the specialist who can diagnose it non-invasively. So that's what we offer in my center. We offer advanced imaging, advanced ultrasound. We have an incredibly high diagnostic accuracy for ovarian endometriosis, of course, deep endometriosis involving the bowel, the bladder, the ureters, the uterosacral ligaments. We have an incredibly high diagnostic accuracy for adhesions in the pelvis that would make a gynecologic surgery more complicated. And that's an incredibly valuable piece of information for surgical resource allocation. We are now also looking for superficial endometriosis, which has historically been the hardest to diagnose endometriosis because it can be one millimeter, two millimeters. It can be tiny and very, very small things are harder to see, both with your eyes, but also through imaging. But we can see features of superficial endometriosis. And today I've been scanning this morning. I diagnosed two patients with superficial endometriosis on ultrasound. I also diagnosed deep endometriosis in other patients, but those patients had a diagnosis through ultrasound. They didn't need surgery to tell them that they had it. Of course, they're going to go on and talk with their referring uh, healthcare providers about surgery versus other treatment options. But you can see all types of endometriosis now in ultrasound. The caveat I give to all my patients, in particular those who have a completely negative or normal, normal, I have air quotes happening right now, which you can't see in podcast world. Um, normal ultrasounds do not mean patients are normal. It just means we haven't seen what is generating the pain problem. So I tell them we can't rule out superficial endometriosis on ultrasound at this point in my hands. And, uh, and I think that's really important to be honest about what we can and cannot do. A lot of the principles that I'm talking about in the uh, area of ultrasound are also applicable to MRI. So the technology is improving, the necessity to look uh, outside of just the uterus and the ovaries, it's growing and it's possible on MRI to do that as well. And then the division of expertise is happening. We're seeing some radiologists who are the people reporting most ultrasound and most MRI. I'm a bit of an exception as a gynecologist who does advanced ultrasound. But the world of MRI, we're seeing radiologists emerge as 
gynecology-focused radiologists. They're endometriosis-aware radiologists. This is the type of radiologist that you need to report your MRI. If you have a general radiologist who's reviewing images of the brain, of the foot, of the liver, and they're also looking at the gynecologic structures, the pelvis, I'm not saying they can't diagnose it. They, you know, there are always going to be people who are good at everything, but people who are focusing on more than just one particular area, that's not their area of interest. That's not their focus. It's not what they're researching. It's not what they're going to conferences about. So you need to ask your healthcare provider to send me to somebody who can diagnose it, who has expertise. That's that, I think that's the next big step that we need to start to see to reduce that diagnostic delay from 10 years, to reduce the number of times somebody is dismissed with a normal ultrasound or a normal MRI. It's ludicrous how often people are invalidated by normal imaging when that imaging is never going to find what they're looking for anyway because they're not looking or the expertise is not there. Is there like a society or something of, you know, specialist ultrasonographers or um, something that people can go to to say like, oh, you know, I can have my medical person send me here because I know at least these people have a spe- special, you know, fellowship training or something yeah. in that. Is there is there like a resource for patients to kind of look for? Not quite formally yet. What we're seeing in North America, I'm sure it exists in other countries as well, are, are lists that are put together by either formal organizations. So in Canada, we have the Endometriosis Network Canada. And they have on their website a list of gynecologists who have done fellowship training in advanced laparoscopy for diseases like endometriosis. There's Facebook groups like Nancy's Nook, and that group has lists of surgeons from around the world who are known to be uh, skilled endometriosis surgeons. We haven't yet seen that come through with imaging. In Australia, where I did some work for a number of years, there is a website. um, I can't remember exactly what the full website is, but maybe you can add it to the page for your podcast. It's, it's short, uh, safe. I am, I can share it with you after Uh, safe is the acronym. And that website does have a few individuals from around the country of Australia and the various States that uh, are experts in imaging for endometriosis. So we're starting to see that, but it's not as um, I would say, common as the list of the surgeons, but we should, we should definitely start to see who is good in my area at diagnosing endometriosis. Who should I go to? How do you know if you have someone who has that? That's the next question, right? (laughs) So how do I know where I'm going, who I see has this level of expertise? It's something that anybody going through any obstacle should ask. If my, I have a problem with my car, if I should ask, you know, is my mechanic equipped to deal with this particular problem? Especially in the world of gynecology, I think you need to ask, is my OBGYN, is my gynecologist equipped at doing this? So one of the great things that we're seeing from some of these advocacy groups is uh, suggested questions you might ask your gynecologist if they're equipped at it. So how many surgeries do you do on endometriosis? What's the composition of your practice? 
obstetrics versus gynecology. The burden shouldn't be on the patient to find the person that's right for them. The health system should be set up in a way that allows that to be easy, but that's not the reality right now. And it's going to take loud voices. It's going to take advocacy from the individual patient to make sure that they're getting the care from the right person. So I think you should ask questions. In one of my encounters with a patient recently, they told me about working with a pelvic floor physiotherapist, for example, and they weren't really getting any anywhere. They didn't find any improvement in their symptoms. And maybe that means that the pelvic floor is not the problem. It probably doesn't. I asked, do you know if this person's an expert? Are they trained in pelvic pain? And they didn't know. They just went to that physiotherapist assuming that they were equipped to deal with it. So I suggested to this patient, hey, why don't you either look them up on their website, see if they have a website or an Instagram page, see what their area of interest is, or if not, just ask them directly. Are you aware of endometriosis? Are you aware of how to treat pelvic pain? It's hard to do that because you don't want to challenge authority, but you also have to take accountability for yourself too, right? So I don't mind if people ask me straight up, you know, how many endometriosis surgeries do you do? Because I'm honest with them. And if they're happy with that answer, then great. Well, and I, I think you bring up a couple of good points is that you kind of have to feel, um, there has to be a level of trust between the two, especially when you're going, you know, if you are with someone who you don't feel seen or heard or, you know, and there always seems to kind of be this tension, then I just don't think that's a good relationship to kind of, because if you have a question or a concern, it's hard to bring it up, you know? So I think you bring up a really good point, especially something like this when you're doing potentially major surgery, you know, if there's something, um, if you're headed in that direction, it's important to feel comfortable. Um, I have in the past known some people who have had spine surgery also another major thing. And I'm like, uh, yeah, there is no problem finding a second opinion just to see, you know, just to hear because Mm -hmm. it's major. And just like, you know, even though there are small, small incisions, the surgery itself, depending, you know, can be quite, um, you know, invasive. And um, it's important that you have a good relationship with whoever you're working with. Um, So I think that's a a really, really good point. Um, And there are you had mentioned earlier about adhesions. Um, can you, mm-hmm. for people who don't know what that is, can you kind of explain what adhesions are and how that might affect um, someone with endometriosis? So adhesions are, in most cases, abnormal, though there are some normal types of adhesions that exist in the body. Um, if you think about cutting yourself, most people have had some type of an injury on their body, fall, a cut, the body heals back together, the a scar forms to close whatever defect has been created by the trauma. And so thinking about that happening inside of the body is similar, slightly different. Endometriosis is, again, inflammatory. So it is an abnormal process that's happening. It's an injury, essentially. And when the body experiences an injury, it that area is infiltrated or rather it's it's asking the body to respond to heal it and the healing response often results in adhesions adhesions are kind of the way that the body tries to heal itself and so things then stick together that shouldn't stick together 
So with uh, ultrasound, for example, it is a dynamic test, which means that if I'm holding the probe and I'm holding the probe inside of the vagina, I can push on the uterus and I can see how the uterus moves relative to the structures around it. I can see if the uterus is stuck to the rectum, for example, and that's one of the most severe types of adhesions that can exist in the pelvis uh, and cause a lot of problems for people and cause a lot of problems at surgery. So I check for that on every single scan that we do. I also look at how the ovaries move and a mobile moving ovary, of course, it's still going to have its blood supply where it's structurally attached, but the surrounding structure of the ovary is not stuck to anything. So it should move around nicely. These are really often reassuring findings that the ovary is not impacted by adhesions. It's when things stick together and it's uh, most often abnormal. Mm-hmm. And then since we're kind of talking about all this, can we also kind of discuss how endometriosis leads to fertility? Like what mechanism, what thing um, makes it so that there's such a high correlation between um, infertility and endometriosis? There are actually several potential impacts endometriosis can have on the fertility pathway. So in order to conceive a pregnancy, a person has to ovulate an egg. And if the ovaries are impacted by endometriosis through an endometrioma, an ovarian cyst, for example, of endometriosis, or through adhesions, ovulation can be impacted negatively, whereby ovulation is not going to actually Uh, the ovulation event is not going to happen in the right area where the fallopian tube can pick up the egg or the egg quality is going to be less because of the inflammation nearby in the endometrioma, for example. After ovulation, the fallopian tube has to pick up an egg. And as we talked about before, fallopian tubes can be blocked. So if the blocked fallopian tubes can't pick up the egg, the egg can never meet a sperm. Then we have impacts on fertilization, which is when the sperm and the egg meet. And we know that endometriosis inflammatory environment can impact on fertilization. By doing things like IVF, where you take out the egg through a procedure, you put the egg and the sperm in an artificial environment and fertilization happens outside the body, you may overcome some of those roadblocks that endometriosis um, impacts on the fertility pathway. We're also learning more about how endometriosis can be associated with negative impacts in pregnancy. So miscarriage, preterm birth, preeclampsia, intrauterine growth restriction, stillbirth, cesarean section. The impact of this disease goes far beyond the ability to conceive, but into pregnancy as well. I might be over-exaggerating, maybe I'm not exactly correct in my thinking, but I consider endometriosis to be a high-risk pregnancy state. And I believe that patients with endometriosis who do conceive, whether naturally or through assisted reproductive technologies like IVF, should be followed by somebody who can identify pregnancy events, negative pregnancy events like blood pressure is climbing or the growth of the fetus, the baby is declining. They should be followed by somebody who can pick those up quickly and Mm -hmm. potentially intervene quickly to optimize the pregnancy outcomes. Mm 
Yeah, I had not uh, heard that yet. So that's um, really good information to know, at least to kind of, you know, if you know, you have access to um, an MFM or something Mm -hmm. that, you know, you can kind of touch base with and just say, hey, you know, I have endometriosis and, you know, or if, you know, you can work with your gynecologist to kind of maybe partner with an MFM that might be able to like come bless you every once in a while to make sure things are okay. Though I think the, uh, the awareness of the impact of endometriosis in pregnancy is still extremely low. And I wouldn't be surprised to hear sentiments like, oh, my obstetrician told me endometriosis is not going to impact my pregnancy. There's still so much knowledge distribution that needs to happen from the leading edge of endometriosis researchers around the world to the people who are practicing, who are talking to patients in real time. So your listeners might actually be more intelligent in some regards that they're learning about, whether that's through a podcast or whether that's through their own research, than their healthcare providers. That's something that I think we really struggle with is the the ability for, in general, medicine, healthcare providers to keep up with where we are in terms of understanding something. No, and I think that's where, you know, conversations like this can be very helpful. So, you know, having you kind of disseminate this information is very helpful for patients to kind of, to be able to, you know, advocate for their own care. And like you said, I do agree that, you know, it should be the other way around, but, you know, unfortunately, um, I think in North America, (laughs) our healthcare systems are broken in many ways and uh, it's not a perfect system at this point in time. So, you know, there are some things, it's, it's a team effort at this point. We just kind of have to all work together to try and get to a space where we can and work with our own restrictions. And, um, you know, it's, it's something that I think is important to kind of discuss. And, you know, I, I don't want to make it about like a you know, us versus them kind of thing. Cause I really hate that. Cause I think that just drives a bigger wedge and creates a bigger problem in our system. A problem exists. I think it's important to acknowledge that, but I think it's also yeah. important to say like, well, let's work together to try and improve this system together. And that might mean that, Hey, I'm going to ask you about something that not necessarily is meant to challenge you, but I hope that you're also open to hearing some of these questions or some of these concerns or whatever we're Together, we can kind of make the system work for all of us. You know what I'm saying? I'm on the exact same page. I consider my patients to be a team member as important as the physiotherapist I refer to or the colorectal surgeon I refer to. At the end of the day, they're the one that is going home with their body. They're the one that has to do the majority of the work uh, on healing. Yes, of course, surgery is done to somebody, but surgery is one part of a puzzle And coming back to an earlier point you made around the trust, the relationship that you develop with the healthcare provider, that's essential. That is the core of a successful outcome for a person. If you don't trust the person that's helping you, whether it's a prescription they give you, a suggestion to work with a dietitian, uh, surgery, the likelihood of that working is going to be lower. We understand well, maybe quite poorly, but maybe we're starting to understand better the concepts of relationships 
and the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. Psychology has such an impact on how we exist and what we experience. There's um, an article that I admit I haven't fully read yet, but I understand a little bit of the premise. It's written by uh, a PhD candidate in the U.S. called Alison Bontempo. She is brilliant. She is focusing on the communication between healthcare providers and patients and does a lot of her research in the domain of endometriosis. And one of the most interesting things that she's recently written about is this concept of uncertainty. And this is something that a lot of people have experienced for years and years, uncertainty around the diagnosis, uncertainty around the treatment options, uncertainty around their future fertility potential. And what I have been trying to do, not since reading the article, but for a long time, is actually put a lot of the uncertainty on the table, being completely transparent about what we know and what we don't know. And giving people the opportunity to ask questions to me that are hard questions. I Sometimes my appointments with patients feel more of like a lecture or an opportunity, like an academic dialogue than an actually delivering of healthcare because there's a lot of uncertainty that people are sitting with around the disease. And so I just love to sit and educate. That's a huge treatment is education on what we know and what we don't know. And so this concept of uncertainty, interestingly, people are okay with, but it has to be transparent and honest. If a doctor pretends like they know something and they don't, and the patient kind of researches something on their own and realizes this doctor is just, you know, lying or they don't actually realize what they don't know, that leads to worse relationships. So I'm super honest about what we know, what I don't know, which is actually most, we don't know that much about endometriosis because it's been such a poorly recognized and researched disease for so long. But I think that helps the relationship and working together um, in a transparent and honest fashion helps outcomes. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's um, a wonderful statement. I'll have to look for that paper too. Um, But so uh, let's talk about Um, So I know how you treat patients with pain and how you treat patients with infertility will likely be different depending on presentation, goals, things like that. So as far as patients with infertility, um, you know, to decrease that inflammation that might help with egg quality or, you know, if there is, um, you know, an issue with the tubes or something like that, then you know, what are, what are some things that you would think about for these patients? Or um, is this something that the reproductive endocrinologist thinks about? Or is this something that you work together with the reproductive endocrinologist? How does that relationship look like to kind of attack, I don't know if that's the right word, but to um, treat this Mm. issue of infertility related to endometriosis? That's a brilliant series of questions. And it is a, um, concept that is incredibly challenging to answer in general. Um, I'll try and touch upon a few, I think, important points around this concept of the patient with endometriosis and infertility. So I guess the first thing to talk about is the structure of medicine in North America, gynecology in North America. You have the OBGYN or the minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon who does the surgery and might prescribe medications for hormonal medications, for example. 
And then a completely different subspecialty of medicine are the reproductive endocrinology and fertility specialists, the REIs. And some REIs do advanced surgery and some minimally invasive gynecologists do some fertility therapies, but actually they're quite distinct and that distinction seems to be growing. So I agree that they need to work together, but most systems, we're not quite seeing that uh, collaborative approach. And so what I see both in real clinical experience, but also in the research uh, sphere and also in the social media sphere, what some, I would say, businesses are putting out, like businesses like a surgeon who has a, a surgical business or a fertility business, the messaging is kind of catered to what they want to deliver. So I exist in a quite unique health system, which is totally publicly funded. Patients don't pay any money for any gynecologic surgery to me ever, uh, but patients pay for IVF. In the US or in other countries, people might have to pay for surgery out of pocket and they might have to pay for IVF. So I think one important thing for people to understand is that there um, is maybe a little bit of conflict of interest happening. And we should be questioning decisions that people make or suggest uh, based on their specialty, whether they're the surgeon or whether they're the REI um, and what they're putting out into the world. So recently I saw a post from a surgeon, I'm not going to say who or where or when, uh, but they said surgery helps infertility and the literature is conclusive on that. And it's not. I've done a systematic review. I've explored the literature. The highest quality studies have not really demonstrated that surgery is going to help people conceive a pregnancy. That doesn't mean that it doesn't. It just means that the research has not shown that that effectively. The highest quality research, like randomized control trial research. There, are, of course, have been observational studies, which are lower quality research and uh, unfortunately exposed to a lot of bias, which means that the result is not always exactly as it's reported. And some of those studies have shown both that surgery helps and surgery doesn't help. So this particular surgeon put out a post that said surgery helps with infertility because that's their business and that's what they believe. That's their anecdotal experience as well, maybe. So that's their truth, right? So kind of all that to say is that right now, I don't think that there is one right answer. And the best thing to do is to get opinions from a surgeon and a fertility specialist. And the best thing to do is understand that there's a lot of uncertainty and an individualized approach is necessary. So what do I mean by individualized? I mean, every person that walks through the door is different and no recipe is going to work for everyone. You could be a 24-year-old with infertility, or you could be a 39-year-old with infertility. That age difference has an impact on fertility, and it has an impact on the efficacy of the different treatments, whether that's IVF or whether that's surgery. You could be a patient with endometriosis and adenomyosis, or an, a patient with endometriosis and no adenomyosis. And the treatment approach to those patients is probably going to be different or should be different. You could be a patient who has uh, endometriosis with endometriomas, ovariansis, 
or you could be a patient without endometriomas. The approach to those two patients is going to be different. You could be a patient with blocked fallopian tubes or not blocked fallopian tubes. And so I'm just giving examples of endometriosis with two different scenarios. Imagine the complexity when you have to look at every single patient that walks into the office and understand their age, their ovarian reserve, their uterus uh, function, their ovaries, their fallopian tubes, the severity of their endometriosis, whether they can pay for IVF or not pay for IVF. Sometimes these social factors come into play as well. So these fertility endometriosis consults are some of the most complex ones because every single person is different. And so anybody who's putting out blanket statements on Instagram or Twitter or wherever that surgery is going to work for endometriosis, I personally feel is doing a bit of a disservice because it's messaging that is not nuanced. It's messaging that is flashy and it's not going to help every single person. So the bottom line is you should have multiple opinions. You should talk to the different people in the different spheres, the REIs, the surgeons, and try and understand in your circumstance, your individualized circumstance, what is the best approach to reach your goals? What's the most realistic approach to reach your goals? No recipe is going to work for anyone. No, I think that's important too, because I think so many of us, like I said, you know, by the time we get here, we're pretty tired. We're exhausted. We're looking for answers. We, you know, you're just anything, you know, you're grasping at straws. Like maybe this will be finally, you know, you're in IVF cycle number eight or whatever, or you've had four or five, you know, failed transfers. And you're like, I want to try something different. I need to do something because there's only so much more of this I can do. Or, you know, like you said, age, you're running out of time. So there are a lot of considerations. So I think that's important to, um, to think about when you're talking to different, um, specialists about these issues. Um, so thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, there are, um, a few, um, submitted questions. So, um, the first question is about silent endometriosis. So can you tell us a little bit about silent endometriosis? That sounds like it'd be a lot more difficult to find. (laughs) Silent endometriosis is essentially endometriosis that exists, but people don't really experience problems that bring them to the attention of a healthcare provider. So I've definitely met patients who have endometriosis that I've picked up on ultrasound and I'm doing an ultrasound, for example, for postmenopausal bleeding. And I see the endo and I ask them, how were your periods in your life? Oh, they were fine. Did you get pregnant? Yeah, I did. No problem. And they, they have it. It's there. It's very obvious, but they just never were bothered by it. I think there's a, maybe an interesting question in this, which is, have these people maybe just been told by their mom, their teachers, you know, your periods are normal. That's just how it is. So that's their life interpretation of it. So is silent endo truly, truly, truly silent? Uh, Maybe. Or is it just they've been sort of trained to accept what is happening in their body and, you know, they, um, they move on with their life. But we mostly see this concept of silent endo in the infertility population because they are not particularly bothered by their periods or pain with sex, for example. And then they try and get pregnant and they can't and they go to a fertility clinic and endo is diagnosed. So we all, 
actually know people. I know many people who that scenario has happened to. Um, and uh, it's probably one of the more challenging things to diagnose because if you don't present to a healthcare provider, you're not going to get diagnosed until you ultimately do. Um, and then does rectovaginal endometriosis affect fertility? Rectovaginal endometriosis is a outdated uh, nomenclature. It's okay. still something that many individuals are using, both professional and, and lay population individuals. Essentially, I, I think what I'm interpreting by this terminology is um, disease in the area of the posterior compartment where the rectum and the vagina are kind of sitting side by side. Uh, and so rectovaginal endometriosis can be rectal endometriosis or vaginal endometriosis or even uterosacral ligament endometriosis leading to adhesions. And so, um, like I said before, there's so much nuance in understanding how endo impacts on things, but the easy answer is yes, because rectovaginal endometriosis equals endometriosis and endometriosis is well known to impact fertility. Um, and you touched on this question, you've kind of touched on the answer, but I'll let you reiterate the uh, answer to this. Is a lap the only way to be sure uh, you have endometriosis or can other tests help? Wait times are so long in Canada. <laughs> yes. So uh, you don't need a laparoscopy to feel settled in a diagnosis for endometriosis or adenomyosis. If you have somebody diagnosing you non-invasively, that, if they have expertise, should be confirmed. Um, any, anything about the wait times for Canada? <laughs> any oh, well, any that, way around that? <laughs> I mean, uh, that's a that's a whole other podcast. System, yeah. <laughs> system uh, issues for gynecology in Canada. This my, my feeling is the specialty of OBGYN needs to split, and we need people to focus on gynecology and people to focus on obstetrics. We need remuneration to be better for gynecology and women's health-related issues. It's a very poorly remunerated area of medicine, and therefore people don't seek it out, even if they're interested in it, because they just are not going to make the amount of money that they perceive to be what they need or value for their time, essentially. So um, wait times are bad. I'm not sure that's going to ever really change in Canada. If you're seeing a subspecialist, uh, hopefully it will as we train more and more minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons. This whole healthcare system thing is a tricky thing. <laughs> it's no perfect answer to fix either system. <laughs> Very layered. Um, okay. This next question is, um, is hydrocell pinks a cause of endo? It's the other way around, right? And endometriosis can cause a hydrocell pinks. Is that right? True. Yes. And it's because of the uh, inflammation um, that causes like the fluid in the tubes. Is that is that the whole idea of how that leads to a hydrocell pinks? The hydrocell pinks will usually form when the end of the fallopian tube called the fimbria becomes adhesed to something else. Uh, or endometriosis exists in that particular area and inflammation causes the end of the fallopian tube to get blocked. The other side of the fallopian tube in the uterus is still open. And like all tissue in our body, it cells die and that becomes fluid. Um, we don't see that visually, but we all know that hair falls out and our 
you know, you can rub off dry skin on your body, cells die and regenerate. So within the fallopian tube, the collection of that fluid is usually from just old cell death and a little bit of backflow from the uterus, but it can't, it can't travel through the fallopian tube to the pelvis because that side of the fallopian tube is blocked. So endo can cause that. But other things can cause hydrosalpinks, hydrosalpinges, uh, which is the plural as well, like pelvic inflammatory disease, chlamydia, gonorrhea, for example, uh, previous surgery, appendicitis. Lots of things can cause a fallopian tube to get blocked. Can can endometriosis excision surgery cause a hydrosalpinx if you had normal tubes? Yeah, any surgery hypothetically could because surgery is still um, considered like a inflammatory event, you're still cutting into, into the pelvis. It shouldn't, if you're a meticulous surgeon, you should be able to do surgery and uh, not damage the structures that are there, but no surgeon is perfect. And surgeons, you know, are as at risk of making error as anybody else. Uh, And there's still inflammation that exists. Infections can happen postoperatively due to surgery. So yes, surgery itself can cause hydrosalpinges to form. What are the best testing options for patients with unsupportive OBGYNs or reproductive endocrinologists? I know it's a loaded question. Sorry. Uh, it's loaded. I mean, the answer is maybe if you're feeling unsupported, they're not the right doctor for you. Um, mm-hmm. So finding somebody who is the right doctor for you can be maybe the first step in the process. Um, but I've had people who have been referred to me without their family doctor or their OBGYN knowing by going to a walk-in clinic. That's not what I'm necessarily Uh, encouraging. mm -hmm. I'm encouraged, you know, I'd like to encourage um, truthful and honest dialogue and people learning. But if you really need to find a path to get to somebody else, then walk-in clinics sometimes can provide that resource. Um, And then providing education as well. Sometimes they don't necessarily want to hear it, but maybe they won't listen if they hear it from you, but if then they hear it from a second or third patient or they reflect on it a few weeks after you have talked to them and they Mm -hmm. might learn something from it, maybe that conversation can change the trajectory of how they look after endometriosis patients. Um, Okay, last question. How often, this is also a loaded question, (laughs) how often do you see success, natural pregnancy after uh, a natural pregnancy or IVF um, or more healthy embryos after excision? I think the whole- It could be anecdotal. The whole podcast conversation has been loaded, right, Victoria? (laughs) That's the whole question. Look, I don't- um, I don't have a number because I think that it doesn't really exist because again, every single person that walks into the office is different. So, I mean, you can look at your whole population and you can look at, you know, how many people have gotten pregnant afterwards, but the person, for example, one of the surgeries that I did this week, we took out their fallopian tubes because they were both damaged with hydrosalpinges. So that person's never going to conceive a pregnancy naturally. So we can't really put them into an equation of natural conception after surgery. But on the flip side, I have a patient right now who's pregnant with twins who I operated on and she got pregnant after the surgery. So it's a hard question to answer, but the 
circumstance around the natural conception, I think the the things that you might look for to um, believe surgery is going to help natural conception are our younger age, uh, normal unaffected ovaries by endometriomas. Certainly you need fallopian tubes that are functional, that are open on both sides. Um, and you need to have regular ovulation and you need to be able to have sex. So I think if you do excision of endo and the rest of the stars align in the function of the other structures, then there is optimism in natural conception. I'm not so sure about the, the concept of quality of embryos after surgery. I don't think that has been demonstrated in the literature, but I could be wrong because I'm not an REI and I'm not doing the IVF myself. Um, it's maybe a, an interesting academic question. Does that change before and after surgery? Uh, but another thing that comes up in the dialogue around surgery for endometriosis when the ovaries are involved is it could be a double-edged sword because you might improve the health of the ovary by removing the inflammation, the source, the endometrioma, but at the same time, you have to cut through the ovary to do that. It's an endometrioma in the ovary. Cysts grow inside of the ovary, so you have to cut through the, the ovary to reach the cyst, and then you have to peel the cyst from the interior of the ovary, and inevitably, some ovarian tissue is lost in surgery, so the idea of ovarian reserve and number of eggs that you have, that's something that a lot of people are very cognizant of because you certainly don't want to diminish or reduce the ovarian reserve. And there are anecdotes um, of people having an ovarian cystectomy for endometriosis and the ovary has to be removed for life-saving purposes because bleeding is uh, life-threatening. If the, if the ovary is bleeding, if the source of the ovary, the um, ovarian artery is bleeding and you can't get control of it, people have lost ovaries when the intention was to take the cyst out to improve the quality of the ovary. So it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Uh, it, it, I think kind of like we talked about before, every, every cut, incision, surgery comes with risk and um, maybe having a discussion about those risks um, prior to considering surgery is something that, you know, you really have to kind of have a dialogue about to decide if that's the right thing for you to do. Yeah. And like I said, everybody is different in how they, and everybody's different in how they present in terms of the, the disease state, the age, you know, all that. But at the same time, everybody is also different in their risk aversion. I have some patients who under no circumstances want to have surgery. And then I have some patients who walk in the door and before I even open my mouth, they say, book me for surgery. So you just have this really interesting um, difference in individuals around what they want, what their preferences are, what risk they're willing to take to achieve an outcome. I always um, do this thing again, podcast, you can't see it, but it's like a scale. I do this thing with my patients where I say, you know, if we're going to talk about surgery, the benefit of surgery, I believe, is is up here. So think of like uh, at the level of my head. And then the risk of surgery is maybe at the level of my shoulder or my hip. So if that's the risk proportion ratio, some people would say, yeah, for sure, that that's worth it. The benefit is way bigger than the risk. And other people would say, you know, know what? No, I want the risk to be at your foot level not at the head, not at the hip, and that's when I'm willing to consider it. So everybody's different. And 
One thing that really bothers me is when people put their own beliefs or expectations on others, and then people feel guilty about the decisions they've made. It's like, no, let everybody make their own decision. If surgery worked for you, great. But if somebody else doesn't want surgery, or if IVF worked for you and somebody else doesn't want IVF, don't judge them for not making the decision that worked for you because they're different. So that's kind of the atmosphere I try and encourage in my clinic is everybody's different. So kind of there's no rules. I think that's an excellent point that you make as far as surgery goes, because I was presented when I had my surgery, I was presented with the option of like, well, you can have surgery, but the risk, worst case scenario, so head, right? Worst case scenario is a colectomy with a colostomy bag. Like worst case scenario, if you have deep infiltrating uh, endometriosis in your bowel, that's what you could be looking at. I was like, okay, well, how likely... And it's hard, right? Because it, if even if you say 2%, who knows whether you're going to be in the 2% or if you're going to be in the 98%, yeah, right? Exactly. The risk still exists, right? Yeah. And so like, does it really matter if you fall into the 2%? Like then you feel like you were in the 98%. You know, it's like, oh, I went into thinking it. So like, that's how I look at risk. I look at risk. It was like, whether it's 2% or 98, I don't ever know if I'm ever going to fall in that 2% or the 98. Like you have just, you just have no idea. So you have to kind of consider the risk. So I, I did think about it and it mm-hmm. did weigh heavily on me in my decision making. And then I kind of asked him like, well, how often did you go into it? Like, and this occurred and he's like, of, you know, the hundreds that we as a group have done, like maybe four times it happened where we had to call a colorectal surgeon and all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, that's hopeful, like for me, but I still understand and I still really understood the gravity of what I was going into, I think also because he's he heavily emphasized the risk. And I think it was important for me to kind of hear that too. So those are kind of just some things to think about. Um, one more question. This is my question. <laughs> um, would you uh, consider an HSG hysterosalpingogram like annually in someone with endometriosis to make sure that the tubes stay open if infertility is an issue for someone? Is that, I mean, that might also be a loaded question, but you know, why not? Yes, of course it is. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I'm very interested in is understanding the disease progression of endometriosis, of adenomyosis over time. Historically, because it was diagnosed almost always at surgery and in many of those scenarios, surgically treated, whether through ablation or excision, nobody has ever truly been able to understand the how the disease changes with time. Does it get worse in everybody? Does it stay the same? Does it maybe even improve how it looks and how it behaves? We don't know. We don't know how the impact of fertility is in people who are 20 but are not anywhere near desiring a pregnancy if they have endo. So I think we do need to do a better job of understanding the changes with time. Do we think we should do a tubal patency assessment in HSG every year? I don't know if that's the right thing. Um, Maybe a regular scan to look at whether there's hydrosalpings or not could be better. Because every time you do a test, you also introduce a risk, right? You can cause an infection after doing a sono or after doing an HSG. So the type of study that needs to be done really does need to look at the benefit of the intervention, but also the risk. And you might find an annual sonohistrography tubal patency assessment actually has a greater risk on causing more 
adhesions, more infections, more blocked tubes than learning whether the tubes are open or not. But that's my like kind of take as a, as a researcher is thinking about the, the way that a study could be designed and what the outcome measures should be. Well, gosh, thanks so much for answering all these questions and educating us. I really learned a lot and I think it really helps me kind of reframe some of my thinking around endometriosis. I'm, you know, I'm pretty new to all of this, even though I kind of had been sitting around on the outskirts, I've kind of been a lurker. (laughs) I've been like lurking at like endometriosis after I found out that, you know, I had this diagnosis. So thank you so much for being here. That's been so helpful. Um, For people who are interested in connecting with you, for people who are interested in uh, talking to you more about, you know, endometriosis, what's the best way for people to connect with you? If there are people in Canada or maybe outside of Canada who, you know, um, want to seek treatment or want to talk to you, what's the best way for people to connect with you? So for clinical uh, relationships, the pathway is through a referral to me at my practice at Hamilton Health Sciences, McMaster University. And on my website, I have a referral form for that. Um, for people who are interested in learning offline uh, through social media, for example, I have an Instagram page at Dr. Matthew Leonardi. I also have a YouTube channel, which I'm not so good at yet, but trying to put some of my lectures that I deliver through webinar forms um, on that page. Again, you can search Dr. Matthew Leonardi on YouTube and find that there. I also have a relatively new ultrasound clinic, which in uh, Ontario is publicly funded. So not out of pocket for people who have uh, health insurance in Canada to come for gynecologic ultrasounds done by my team and interpreted by me in a subspecialized way, including for endometriosis. But this type of a clinic could hypothetically be open to even Americans uh, who would, of course, have to pay out of pocket as they wouldn't have Canadian health insurance but may be able to use local insurance or um, be able to just pay out of pocket if they're interested in having scans done for endometriosis or sonohistrography or for issues like adenomyosis or ovarian masses even. Any gynecologic problem that um, there is uncertainty around, my goal with the ultrasound clinic is to provide people with certainty in a non-invasive and safe fashion. Are we perfect? No. Do we always get the answer? No. But we're very good. We work very hard to try and get people the answers they need. So that way they can make the right decisions about what the treatments are, if any. The name of that ultrasound clinic is uh, SUGO for short, S-U-G-O, which stands for Specialized Ultrasound in Gynecology and Obstetrics. The website is sugoclinic.com. And uh, just... um, around the the order of the letters SUGO. The G was intentionally put before the O because in the world of OBGYN, obstetrics always takes people's priority. The acuity of Mm. obstetrics seems to get more funding, more research funding, more clinical funding. And my focus is to elevate gynecology. Of course, obstetrics is important and there is a spectrum from being not pregnant to being pregnant for those that are interested. But we need to put the gynecology health forward, you know, equally as important as obstetrics. So the G has come before the O in this particular center. 
Yes. Yes. I love that. I think that's great. It's, it's a statement for sure. <laughs> not, not only in name, <laughs> but in, in clinical reference and clinical significance, you've also made a statement. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I'm so, so grateful for all the time you've spent in educating us in, in so many different avenues around not just endometriosis, but um, imaging and even, you know, maybe helping us start a movement around, you know, increasing improved imaging, um, particularly for some of these conditions that at one point in time could only be diagnosed um, in a very invas invasive um, manner that, you know, maybe we can move to a less invasive way to kind of um, try and uh, diagnose and treat these conditions. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm so, so grateful. Um, and hopefully, if anything other, if any new imaging techniques come up, I would love to have you back on. If you want to, you know, do more specific conversations around imaging itself, um, I would love to kind of help um, support your uh, movement to improve and teach people more about imaging and what it can do and how it can serve people. So I'd, I'd love that if, if you're open to it at some point in time. Thank you again for having me, for providing an opportunity to share what I know, where I think things are going, for an opportunity to try and encourage other people to become endo warriors as well. The movement is happening the dialogue is increasing. It needs to keep growing. The more it grows, the more we're going to see positive change come. And that's going to be instrumental to allow for people with gynecologic problems to excel in life in whatever way they want. So thank you for the opportunity. And I'm sure we'll talk again at some point uh, about other things as well. Yes, 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 for sure. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. As always, please share with anyone who may find value in our conversations. And if the mood strikes you, please feel free to donate to the podcast or leave a five-star review so we can get more listeners to hear these stories and resources. I will have a link in the show notes along with the books that we discussed on this episode. They'll be linked to my Amazon shop. Your purchase with that link helps me offset the costs of running the podcast. So I'd be so grateful if you opted to buy any of the books we discussed on the show through that link. Thank you to everyone who is part of the 40 and infertile community. I am so grateful for all of you and I hope to continue bringing you more content that helps you in your quest to parenthood. If you want to have a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile.